First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, on this Sunday, as we think back to the events of 504 years ago, that really launched the Reformation, the nailing of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door. Father, we thank you for one of the battle cries of the Reformation, sola scriptura. Lord, we thank you that your word is enough. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Father, that in your perfect word, you show us what we need to know about ourselves, what we need to know about you, what we need to know about salvation. Father, today, would you speak to us through this story that we have just heard read, that we might see more clearly what you've done for us in Christ. We ask it with the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, church family, thank you so much just for that um, special time uh, earlier in the service. Uh, Pastor David surprised me with that in the first hour, um, but just very special and of course, so thankful for these 10 years uh, that God has given us here to serve uh, in this place. Uh, such a privilege and a blessing and one I don't deserve to serve here. And I do pray if the Lord would allow me to serve, uh, that he would give many more years to come, uh, to be with you, to be on mission with you. Thank you for your prayers for me and for all of the pastors. Thank you for uh, making it a joy uh, to serve here in this place. And so, um, you know, I, I wonder if you've ever been in a, in a situation where you've just been, you've been stuck, you, um, you just can't get out of where you are. I, I remember several years ago, I was using my, my father-in-law's riding mower uh, it was a zero-turn yellow riding mower. I had it in the backyard and was mowing back there. And our, our backyard, maybe your yard, it has some spots in it like this. It just accumulates water. So if it ever rains, you know, it just kind of becomes real muddy. And so I always try to be careful about that, try to, you know, stay far away from that. Maybe use, you know, line trimmer or smaller mower, you know, in that area and keep away from that with a big mower. But on this particular day, uh, I guess I just got a little bit too close, didn't know how, how soupy it was. And so, you know, the wheel of that riding mower got, got stuck there in the corner of my backyard. And I tried everything that I could do to get that thing out of there. And of course, you kind of know how that usually works, right? The more you try and the more you spin those tires, what happens, right? Just the further down into the mud uh, you, you sink. And so uh, there, there was just nothing that I could do to get out. I was stuck. And you know, in this series called Legends, we're reading about a time like that in Israel's history where they just kept getting stuck. And we talked about that last week. It was just kind of a vicious cycle for them where they got stuck time and time again. They'd sin against the Lord. They'd go and worship these other gods and the Lord would, uh, would discipline them. The Lord would raise up uh, one of the enemy nations around them that would come and kind of rule over them for a period of time. And uh, things got bad for God's people. And finally, it reached a point where they were desperate enough. They'd cry out to the Lord to save them. And the Lord would raise up a hero. He would raise up a savior, a deliverer. In this book, those heroes are called judges. And they would be used by God to rescue his people, to set them free. And then they would enjoy a, a, a period of time uh, where they'd have relative peace, relative freedom in the land until they sinned against God again. And the whole cycle started over again. 
Last week, we saw how God used a left-handed deliverer named Ehud to save his people. Next week, uh, we're going to look at probably the most famous of all the judges, the strong man, Samson, and how God used him. But today, we're looking at another very well-known judge, this man named Gideon. And we've called this series Legends because these, these heroes are truly legendary in the pages of the Bible. The stories that we read about them are legendary stories. But what we're going to see each of these weeks in this series is that though they are heroes, they are not the real hero. They're not the real legend of the Bible. Now, their stories were designed to point us ahead to the one who is the real hero the real legend, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at the gospel or the good news, according to Gideon, there are two very simple salvation principles that I want us to see in this story together. The first principle is simply this. We all need to be saved. We all need to be saved. Now, Gideon's story is told over the course of three chapters, Judges 6, 7, and eight. It takes a hundred verses altogether to tell the story of Gideon. We won't have time today to walk through all hundred of these uh, verses, but we're going to kind of hit some of the highlights of this story. The story starts in verse one of chapter six. It really kind of paints the picture for us of what was going on at the time. It says, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. During Ehud's time, uh, the main enemy that ruled over them was the Moabites. But now in the days of Gideon, the enemy that uh, is ruling over them is the, are, are the Midianites. Now you might remember that Moses married into the Midianites back in the days of Exodus. But by the time we come to the book of Numbers, the Midianites are already becoming a thorn in Israel's side. And here God is using the Midianites to discipline his people. And this has been going on now for seven years. One thing that's important to understand is that the oppression that God's people were experiencing under the Midianites was a little bit different than what they had experienced before. Uh, the Midianites did not come in and live there all the time and, you know, rule over them as their overlords. What the Midianites did in verses three through six kind of explained this for us. They, they would just sit back in their own country. They would wait for Israel to plant their crops and they would wait until it was just about time to harvest those crops. And then they would move in. Uh, the text uses the imagery of a swarm of locusts. It's a fitting imagery. as They just kind of came in with their tents, just covered the land. They set up shop. They ate the food. They took a lot of it back to their own country. They took their herds, their crops, their fruits. They took all of it. They stripped the country bare. And then they left the Israelites with virtually nothing to get through the winter months. And then they'd wait till the next year. And they do it all over again. And they did that seven years in a row. And this was truly a reign of terror that had been going on. And it says in verse six that the Midianites were greatly impoverished during this time. They needed saving. And so they finally cried out to the Lord. I said a moment ago, though, that we all need saving. And that is true. There's not one person in the world who does not need God to save them. You know, some folks, you know, kind of have trouble accepting that. Some folks have trouble admitting that. And I think that's 
kind of goes back to our pride. You know, we really don't like to admit that we need someone to help us, that we need someone to rescue us, to save us. You know, I, I, I think about, you know, driving. I, I think it might be a male characteristic. I'm not sure, but I know when I'm, when I'm driving, I don't know if any other guys in here can relate. When I'm driving and, and I have no idea where I'm doing or where I'm going, and my family is with me, and my wife's with me, and my kids are with me, and they, they kind of can sense that I probably have no idea where I'm going. But do you want to let on, men, that you have no idea where you're going? Absolutely not, right? You got to turn in your man card if you do that, right? And so if you just, I know where I am. We're, we're, we're in Florida. We're fine. We're, we're going to be just fine. Dad knows where he's going, right? You know, and I think, sadly, though, there's some people who are like that, not just when it comes to driving. They're like that when it comes to life. We don't want to admit that we're lost. We don't want to admit that we need help. But the reality is we, we cannot be saved until we admit we need saving. We cannot be found until we admit that we're lost. When I look at this story, there's, there's a couple of signs, indicators that the people of God had lost their way. I think we see these same signs in our own life. First off, we should know we're lost when we ignore God's word. When we ignore God's word, you know, in verses seven through 10, God sends an unnamed prophet to his people and he uh, reminds them of God's truth. He reminds them of all the things that God had already done for them throughout their history. But notice what it says at the end of verse 10, it says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And when we're not obeying God's voice and we're not listening to God's word, we're not doing what God has said. That's an indication that we have lost our way. Of course, we've all done that. Not one of us in this room that has perfectly obeyed the word of God. And so that statement, but you have not obeyed my voice, could be said to every single one of us. You know, a second sign that we've lost our way is that we hide from God's presence. That's what you see the people of God doing. In verse two, it says, whenever the Midianites would come, the people of God went running. They were hiding out in caves. They were hiding out in holes and in the mountains, wherever they could find. Even when it comes to Gideon, right? The one that God is about to raise up to be the rescuer, to be the champion. When we first meet Gideon, he's threshing wheat, but he's not threshing wheat where you normally would, which is above ground in an airy place where the wind comes and helps blow and separate the wheat from the chaff. Instead, it says he's threshing wheat down in a wine press, which would have been located down a little bit below the ground. And it says that he's doing it because he's hiding from the Midianites, so even the champion is afraid. Even he is hiding. And when we see that, we think about how he was hiding. We need to admit that each of us has been hiding as well because of our sin. When I think about that picture uh, of the way they were hiding and because of the sin they had committed, you know, it reminds me of one of the first stories in the Bible what happened in the Garden of Eden. You remember after Adam and Eve ate that fruit that they were not supposed to eat, it says that the Lord came walking and he called out, Adam, where are you? And what were Adam and Eve doing? They were hiding. They were hiding from God because of the sin that they had committed, because of their guilt and because of their shame. And some of you are hearing that and you, you can relate to that. Because possibly, you know, your whole life up until this point, that's what you've been doing. You've been ignoring the word of God. You've been living life the way that you have wanted to live it. 
And you have a sense that God is there. You know that God is there, but you almost want to push that from your mind. You almost don't want to think about that because really you don't want to face that. You want to hide from his presence. Maybe even today in in church today, you're kind of feeling like Gideon did, you know, where he was down below the ground. You almost feel like maybe by coming to church today, you're kind of peeking your head out of the hole in the ground just a little bit. But you're almost afraid of what God is going to say. Almost afraid that you're not ready to hear what he has to say to you. You know, the first thing God wants to say to us and first thing we need to understand this salvation principle is that we all need to be saved because we all have been lost. We've either been lost at one point in the past and we've been found because we've come to know Christ or we're still lost right now. But at one point or another in our life, we all need to be saved. It's actually the greatest need that we have. But here's the second salvation principle we need to see. And this is so hugely important. We're going to spend the entire rest of our time unpacking this and seeing this in this story. The Lord does the saving and he deserves all the glory. The Lord does the saving and he deserves all the glory. After the people got desperate enough, they finally cried out for God's help. And God responds in verse 11 by sending this individual who is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Now, if an angel were ever to show up to you and start talking to you, would that be a pretty memorable day, do you think, in your, in your life? I think it'd be a pretty memorable day for me too. But I actually believe this day in Gideon's life was even more special than that. Because I don't believe that this was just an ordinary angel, as wonderful as that would be, who showed up to him. The reason I believe that is because, you know, throughout the Bible, angels do not receive worship from men. Angels direct, redirect that worship to God because worship only belongs to him. But what you see in this passage is this angel of the Lord character, he actually receives the worship that Gideon offers to him. Throughout this passage, the language of the angel of the Lord and the Lord are used simultaneously throughout this passage. And so I truly believe, as many others do as well, that this individual that showed up to Gideon was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the eternal son of the father showing up before Bethlehem in human form and appearing to Gideon. Now, how wonderful it is to think about that. That this one who is calling Gideon to be a deliverer is the one who would one day deliver us all. And so he speaks to him. And as you read these words, as you read this story, Again, the Lord shows us over and over through this text that he is the one who does the saving. First of all, he shows that because he raises up the Savior and he saves him first. And he raises up the Savior and he saves the Savior. Gideon is the Savior that God is about to use at this time. God is raising him up for this purpose. But you can tell right out of the gate that this Savior that God has chosen needs to be saved himself. Remember what I said a moment ago about what Gideon was doing when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He's down below the surface of the ground, threshing the wheat because he's afraid. And then God says this to him in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, did Gideon look like a mighty man of valor at that particular moment? 
right? As he's cowering down in a hole in the ground because he's afraid. And yet what a beautiful reminder when God meets us, God can see in our life things that aren't even there yet, right? God can see in our lives things that he's gonna do with us, how he's gonna transform us, how he's gonna use us, how he's gonna give us valor and courage that we did not have before. Again, that's why I say Israel's savior needed saving himself. And we see that in several ways. First of all, he needed saving from his despondency. His despondency. You can see how despondent he is, the way he responds in verse 13. Gideon said back to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now he probably felt about this situation the way a lot of the people in his day felt about it. He probably you know, thought, you know, I, I've heard these stories of the things that God has done and the Exodus and all those wonderful things, but where's God right now? And right now, for seven years in a row, people keep coming and taking all of our food. Maybe you felt that way sometimes. You know, I read about <laughs> these powerful stories in the Bible, things that God has done. I hear other people talk about things that God has done in their life. But right now, where, where is he? I, I need him to show up right now in my life. That's how Gideon felt at this particular point in time. But you know, you hear that speech and does this sound like a hopeful, inspiring leader that you want to get behind? Right, this man is despondent and yet God is not deterred. In fact, in verse 14, the Lord said to him, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? But Gideon hears that and he's thinking, all right, I, I kind of get what you're asking me to do right now, but I'm pretty sure you have the wrong guy. And, and then he says this in verse 15, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. Not only did Gideon need to be saved from his despondency, he also needed to be saved from his inadequacy. I've always loved this verse because basically Gideon is saying, I am the absolutely last person in the entire nation of Israel that you should have picked. He's saying, my tribe, the tribe of Manasseh is the weakest tribe out of the 12. And then my clan, my family, we're like the weakest family in the tribe. And then I am like the most insignificant member of my family. So you pick the weakest tribe, the weakest family, and the weakest person. You literally have picked the worst person. And have you ever felt like that when God called you to do something? He called you to step out and you're saying, God, like, I don't know who, you, you know who you're talking to right now? You're asking me to do this? And yet God speaks to him and encourages him. And look at how God responds in verse 16. So beautiful. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you will defeat the Midianites as one man. I want you to take to heart the way the Lord responds to him. Because you know, there's some other situations that are similar to this in the Bible. You remember the story of Moses. There's a lot of parallels between this story and the story of Moses. When God calls Moses at the burning bush to go and speak to Pharaoh, to tell him to let my people go. You remember what Moses said? He said, you got the wrong guy. He said, Lord, I mean, I, you know, my mouth doesn't work, but you know, me no talking so good, Lord. You know, I'm, I'm not the right one. You know, when God came to Jeremiah, the prophet, and he called him, he said, from the womb, I called you and I anointed you and ordained you to be my prophet. And Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm too young. I'm just a youth. I'm just a child. 
You you need to wait till I grow up. In, In all of these cases, you know, the Lord does not say that the person is wrong about whatever it is they feel inadequate about. You know, he didn't say to Moses, you know what, actually, Moses, I've heard you speak sometimes when you're by yourself and you're speaking to the sheep. You are actually very eloquent. You don't know it. You're too modest, right? He didn't say that to Moses, right? He didn't say to Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah, you're actually just very mature for your years. I know you're young, but you're, you're beyond your years in maturity. He didn't say that. He didn't say to Gideon in this passage, Gideon, you know, there's actually this family member back in your lineage you don't really remember, but you were actually the most important family in all of Israel. He didn't say that. No, what he said in all three instances is the same thing that he says to us. I will be with you. That's really all we need to know, isn't it? It's not about us anyway. It doesn't matter whatever inadequacies or insufficiencies we might have. God responds with the same words. I will be with you and you're going to do it. Because he's the one who does the saving. Well, he wasn't quite done saving his savior yet. He's already saved him from his despondency, from his sense of inadequacy. But now he wants to save him also from his uncertainty, from his lack of faith. There's another parallel with Moses at this point in the story. Because you remember when God called Moses, Moses asked for a sign. And God gave him a sign. Here, Gideon asked for a sign. And the Lord gives him one, right? The Lord burns up the sacrifice. And then he vanishes right in front of him. And you would think that would be enough, right? If you put a a sacrifice on the table and, you know, the angel of the Lord was there and he touched it and it burned up and then he disappeared right in front of you, would you think, okay, yeah, I probably, probably should go do this, right? This is, this is clearly the Lord has called me to do this. And yet that wasn't enough for him. And so after he passes his first test, which is to go and tear down the statue of Baal that his father has set up in the backyard, And when the battle with the Midianites is about to happen, he gets nervous again. And so he asks the Lord for a couple more signs. This is one of the most famous parts of this story where Gideon puts his fleece on the ground. Look at verse 36 with me. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. I love this. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just speak one more time. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. In other words, do the opposite. That'll be even harder. Then I'll know. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, putting out your fleece, right? That's even an expression. I'm going to put out the fleece. And, and a lot of times we use that language to, to, to almost like we're trying to test and find out what God's will is. So I'm going to find out what God's will is by putting out the fleece. We need to remember that's not actually what happened in the story, right? Was there any confusion about what God's will was? God had already made it very clear what his will was. <laughs> he had already said, you're going to go You're going to defeat the Midianites as one man, and I'm going to be with you. Now get going. Right? God already had communicated his will. There's no mystery about his will. What Gideon is doing is he's asking for yet another sign, yet another confirmation that the Lord is going to be with him, which he's already told him he's going to be with him. And yet what amazes me in this story is how gracious and how condescending to Gideon's weakness God is. 
And even though he is not under, under any obligation to do this, he gives him these signs that he needs. In fact, he even gives him another, we wouldn't have time to read it, but right before the battle, he gives him another unrequested sign where he tells Gideon to go down to the enemy camp and eavesdrop and he hears one of the enemy soldiers telling about a dream he had about how Gideon was going to come in and win the battle. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew that Gideon needed that. He knew that his faith needed that encouragement at this particular moment. But listen, church, the takeaway from this is not that we're to do as Gideon did, right? The takeaway from this is not that every time God tells us to do something, we're going to not do it until he gives us like 13 signs in a row that tell us, oh yeah, I really actually didn't mean for you to do that. Right? That's, that's not what we're to take away from this story. No, in fact, if, if we need to see it before we can do it, then where is the role of faith at all? And what we read in the New Testament is that we who know Christ are to walk by faith and not by sight. What he's calling us to do is to move ahead. When we hear his voice, to be obedient to his voice, even if he has not given us some some sign in advance of confirmation of how it's all going to turn out. He wants us to obey him and to follow his voice because we trust him. And we know that he is with us. In this story, the Lord shows us that he is the one who does the saving. He shows us that, first of all, by raising up a savior, and then saving him. But he also shows us that. He shows us he's the one that does the saving by reducing the size of the army. Now, when you're getting ready to go into a battle, is it usually a good idea to make the army smaller? Or do you normally want to make the army bigger, right? That's a pretty obvious thing, right? And yet that's the way we think, but that's not the way God thinks. And so God comes to Gideon in chapter seven, verse two, and he says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So the Lord says to Gideon, your army is just too big. <laughs> I'm sure Gideon is hearing that and he's, he's already outnumbered. He's probably hearing that and he's thinking, Lord, I think it's probably okay. You know, let's, let's just let it go. You know, let's, let's leave all of these people. The more the merrier, Lord. That's what I always say. But the Lord says, no, it's, it's too big. I can't let you win this battle with this many people. And he tells us why. He says, because if I let you do that, you're going to take the glory that belongs to me. You're going to think in your mind and you're even going to say with your lips, my own hand has done this. And so I'm not going to let that happen. Now, one thing we need to remember is they were already outnumbered. Like I just said, the Midianite army had 135,000 soldiers. They only had 32,000. So they already were outnumbered four to one. But the Lord said, four to one is still too good of odds. We're going to thin it out. And so he puts them through a couple of tests. The first test he puts them through is just a simple fear test where he says, Gideon, just go to the soldiers and say, if you're afraid, go home. And 22,000 of them said, peace out, right? There's some other things I could probably be doing right now. I am out, right? And so it's down to only 10,000 now. Now you're, you're at odds of 13 to one. The Lord says, that's still too good of odds. Let's, let's get it down smaller. And so I want you to go to some water. And this is one of the famous parts of this passage, right? They go to this pool of water, all the soldiers drink. And it says that there are 300 of them that lap up the water like a dog, right? They're laying down on their face, lap, and it's very, very uh, you know, noble, right, looking, right? 
Then there's 9,700 of them that get down. They, they cup the water, right? They scoop the water. And then God says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to separate the scoopers from the dog lappers. And, and he says, send the 9,700 scoopers home. Keep the 300 dog lappers, and that's going to be your army. And it's kind of comical too, when you read some of the commentaries about this passage, there's all kinds of arguments about these 300 dog lappers and how because of the way they drank the water, they must have been the more elite soldiers and all this. And I'm not buying that. But regardless, I think it completely misses the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not that these 300 soldiers that God was giving to Gideon were like the 300 Spartans at the battle of Thermopylae, right? This is not what's going on. These are not the green berets. The whole point of this passage is, Gideon, I'm going to give you an army that is so small and so pathetic and so outnumbered. And in just a minute, we're going to see also they don't even have any real weapons in their hands. So that when they win the battle, you will know that you did not do it, but I did it. And if that wasn't clear enough by the way the Lord reduced the army, it should be even more clear by the way the Lord routed the enemy without a single sword. We see the battle plan laid out, if you can call it that, in verse 16. Gideon splits his army into three companies of 100 soldiers each. That wasn't very unusual. What is unusual are the weapons that he gives to each of these 300 soldiers, right? He doesn't give them a sword and a, you know, a gun and a hand grenade. You know, of course, two of those haven't been invented yet, but he didn't give them three weapons. Instead, what he gave them is a, a torch and a clay pitcher and a trumpet. That's what they got. No swords, torches, pitchers, and trumpets. It sounds more like they're getting ready for some kind of a strange midnight concert than a battle. Gideon tells him what to do with this stuff. He says, we're going to get in a big circle all around the Midianite camp. He says, I want you to take that torch and light it, but I want you to cover it with that clay pitcher. No one can see the light. I want you to hold the trumpet in your other hand. Then I want you to wait for my signal. When you hear me blow the horn, you blow your horn. You smash the clay pitcher so that everybody can see the light. And then you shout out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, now that's a fairly ironic thing to shout out, right? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon when none of them had a sword. That's what he says to shout. And then in verse 22, it really tells us why they won the battle. Because the Lord caused the Midianites in the camp to start fighting with one another. And you can kind of imagine and picture how the Lord could have caused that, right? It's in the middle of the night. They've just had the shifting of their guard. They hear the trumpet blast. They all come kind of wandering out of their tents. And then all of a sudden, all those pitchers are broken at the same moment. And so it goes from pitch blackness to 300 torches encircling them all the way around their camp. They think there's a gigantic army that has just showed up. And not only that, because it was the changing of the guard, some of their own soldiers are walking around the tents. They think the Israelites are already in our camp. And so they stand up and they start mistaking friend for foe. They start fighting with one another and they end up killing each other. In the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, the Israelites go and find some swords at this point, and they run after the rest of the army. They end up killing two of their princes, two of their kings. The Lord gives a great victory that day, releases them from their captivity to the Midianites. But because of how the battle was won, with only 300 men, with 300 more 
trumpets than they had swords. There is no way that the Israelites could think we did this. They had to know the Lord does the saving and the Lord deserves the glory. You know, that isn't only true long ago in the days of the Midianites. That same principle is just as true today. We said earlier that we all need to be saved and we do because we are all sinners. But if anybody is going to be saved, it is not we who will do the saving. It is the Lord. And the Lord deserves all the glory for it. The Israelites faced an enemy that was too numerous, too powerful for them to overcome. Well, so do we. All of humanity faces enemies that are too powerful for us to overcome. The enemy of sin and death and Satan himself who has us in their clutches. There's nothing we can do to break free, nothing we can do to win the battle. But the same one who appeared that day long ago to Gideon appeared again in Bethlehem. This time he did not come to call someone else to be the deliverer. This time he came to deliver us himself. Like Gideon, he didn't wage the war the way that we would have thought. He did not muster a huge army. He really only had 12 soldiers. If you think about it, even those 12 soldiers all abandoned him that night of the battle in the garden when they came to arrest him. And yet Jesus went willingly with them into the fray. And Jesus let them nail him to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus Christ, our hero, our savior, won that battle over sin and over death, over Satan, over hell itself. And he won that battle without a sword in his hand. Like Gideon, he won that battle with a shout. Instead of shouting out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, that day the Lord himself shouted out from the cross, it is finished. Because on the cross, he paid the price in full to cover our sins. He finished the work of our deliverance. He defeated all of our enemies as a one-man champion. There was no trumpet blast that day as Jesus hung upon the cross But one day we read in God's word that the trumpet will sound. And that same deliverer, our champion, our savior, will return for his own. And here's the thing, church, that we need to remember. Just like Israel could not take credit for the battle that Gideon won, because really it was the Lord that won the battle, we can't take credit for our salvation. Not in any part. Because we did not win the battle, Jesus won it for us. He delivered us and he is the one who's worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Romans chapter three, Paul wrote these words for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we need saving. And then he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, where is boasting then? It is excluded. In other words, we don't have any room to boast, right? Boasting is excluded because we don't have anything to boast about. 
We did not contribute anything to our salvation. We are saved by his grace. Paul put it like this in Ephesians 2, these famous words, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know that day that I got my mower stuck in the mud in the backyard. Again, I tried everything that I could think of to get it out. I couldn't get it out. But finally, I called my, my father-in-law, and he came in that old blue pickup truck that he had. And he, he drove right through my front yard. You know that? You believe that? <laughs> drove right through my front yard, right through the gate, into the backyard with the pickup truck. And we had to use ropes and chains and boards under the tires and all kinds. We had to work at it. But he sure enough pulled that thing out. Now, I, I, was, I was stuck. I, I could not get out. But he got me out. Christian, don't ever forget where you were when you met Christ in a saving way. You were stuck in the muddy hole of your sin. And you might have tried lots of things to get out. You, you might have tried being good, as good as I can be. I want to overcome these things on my own. You might have tried going to church, being religious. I, I don't know. You might have tried therapy. You might have tried medication. You might have tried all kinds of things, and yet you were still stuck. The more you tried, the deeper and deeper that wheels got stuck. There was nothing you can do until, until Jesus came and took your feet out of the miry clay and set them on the rock. You couldn't get out, but he came and got you out. Christian, don't ever rob the Lord of the glory that belongs to his name. Let's never boast of ourselves. Let's never think that in any way we contributed to our salvation. Listen, all we had in our hands was a torch and a clay pitcher and a trumpet. Not nearly enough to get the job done. We are saved by his grace. We are saved by his power. We are saved because a one-man champion came who is far better than Gideon, who defeated all of our enemies that we can never defeat on our own. And so let's say it now and let's say it for all eternity. God does the saving and God deserves the glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you today that you are the one who saves and you alone. We thank you today that when you found us, Father, we were stuck. There was nothing we could do to get unstuck. Father, we needed a savior. We needed a hero. We needed a legend to come. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your one and only son who died for our sins on the cross, who pulled us out, who gave us life and forgiveness. Grace, mercy, peace, love, hope. Father, I pray for every child of God in this place today. Father, I pray that in our hearts would rise up to you today gratitude all over again. Praise from our heart, Father, from the deepest places in our heart to know that you saved us when we could not save ourselves. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who is still stuck, that today they'd cry out to you, that you would bring them out. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Church, let's stand together. And even as I prayed just a moment ago, if you're here today and you would say, you know, I, I feel like I am still stuck. I feel like the wheels of my life have just dug in deeper and deeper. I can't get out. I've tried to get out. But I know Jesus came to bring me out. I know he died for me. I believe he rose again. And I want to receive him into my life. I want to start new. If that's you today, I want to invite you to come and share that with me or one of the other pastors that's here. Just simply say that I need Jesus to bring me out today, right now. And you come and receive that, that gift. We read in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. But just like any other gift, this gift has to be received, has to be accepted by faith. I'm inviting you right now to reach out your hands and accept that gift by faith. You come as we sing together.